this week, 61 through 70. And these films just keep getting better. Some of them do. Some of them don't. Well, you know what? Let's start right with some that might not be on, um, at the top of your list. Starting off here, number 70, A Clockwork Orange from 1971, um, directed and written by Stanley Kubrick, starring Malcolm McDowell, Patrick McGee, Michael Bates. Probably one of the most provocative American films ever made. You could say that. Yeah. First of all, I just want to get it out of the way right now. What is your beef with this? I just, I watched it for a class. And I was really open-minded about it. A lot of films you see in class, you're not really open for it. You're just kind of like, oh, we're watching this today. I was like, I really want to understand this movie because I've heard about it. I didn't see it. And I think it was sophomore year and I watched it. I just didn't get the point of the movie. Sure. I, I didn't like any of the characters, which I think is the point of uh-huh. the movie. I Of Stanley Kubrick's movies, I think this is not his best but i think this was a time where he could do anything he wanted and he wanted to do this not based off this novel novel and it's i just i'm not the biggest fan of this movie yeah. it's just, it's nothing against the like i understand what people like it a lot i just i'm i'm not in, in that category it's a tough film to say that you love based on the subject matter of it yeah if you say you love this movie you need some help <laughs> Um, yeah, it might need to go to a mental institution like uh, our friend Malcolm McDowell goes to. Yeah, which that was the first time I ever seen Malcolm McDowell, I think. Yeah. Well, that was a breakout role for him, for sure. Definitely. Um, it's, yeah, everything is really just ratcheted up um, to about an 11 or 12 Yeah, in this I mean, ultra violence. Ultra violence, is... a lot of sex, a lot of um, just, again, I think provocative is really just the word that keeps jumping to my it mind. It gets the people going. <laughs> I, I, I... I just I just don't get the point of this movie, especially with Kubrick, because I think you could put Spartacus on this list. Mm-hmm. I think you definitely could put The Shining, but that's kind of confusing. I found out why it's not on the list. It may have been a British ma- film. Cause the Shining is? Because uh, his headquarters for his production company were in the UK. Oh. But I think that's kind of a weird, muddy line because he's an American director. Yeah. And Warner Brothers owns the rights to this movie. That is, gets kind of weird. Yeah, so I think that's why it's not on the list. Okay. But at 70, I feel like it's really high for this movie. I I think that A Clockwork Orange, um, I, I think it, it works for me. Okay. Um, I, I think that it's something different, and it's something that um, it's very – it's very within Kubrick. Oh, it's a Kubrick film. It, it There's is no a Kubrick way, you film. You can't to deny this isn't Kubrick. Yeah. Like it's the most Kubrick of the Kubrick movies. It's just it's just so unlike anything I've ever seen, and so I think that that in a way just makes it memorable. And also, again, I can't. I don't know if I can say it's an enjoyable experience, but it's definitely something that I I won't forget for probably the rest of my yeah, life. Yeah, I mean, it, it's ballsy for him to do this movie. Yeah, especially with the subject matter. And the writer really didn't want him to direct it, which is a common theme for yeah. for Kubrick, that the writer didn't want him to direct because it turned into his own, not the based off the book. I, I just don't like it. I mean, yeah. you have every reason. I mean, it has every reason to be on the list because it's influential as all hell. Sure. Um, but I, I've said my piece about it. I just, nah, not my thing. Yeah, I think that um, A Clockwork Orange, um, kind of like you said, influential. It's really, it's it's kind of a rule-breaking film in a way. I mean, the amount of sex and violence and just brutality and torture on screen yeah. is so weird. And it, I don't think you would have seen it in any other film besides this at the time. I also don't think, at least in my ter- interpretation of it, I don't think Kubrick is necessarily glorifying this. No, he's showing the he's, he's showing it real the realism of it. Yeah, like like the rape scene with singing in the rain, which that I that, mean that that inf- kind of ruined that for me <laughs> singing in the rain. <laughs> and also you have I mean, Gene Kelly sued them because of it. Oh, I mean I don't blame him. I mean that's a that's a really I guess visceral. I think a lot of people had a visceral reaction to to hearing that used yeah. that song used in that way. Yeah, um, for sure. And then obviously you have the classic. They're forcing him to watch with the eyes. Yeah, open. and they put. And I guess that was really rigged up to his face, and he had his eyes open. That like it yeah. wasn't like he he had his eyes really open. They really forced his eyes open. And McDowell, a bunch of times, said, "I don't want to be in this." And Kubrick just kind of pushed them to the point where like you're going to be in this, 
I mean, he got a great performance out of it, but sure. it's just like it's Kubrick basically at the height of his Kubrickness. Yeah. Also, I, I think that a film like this would be just honestly a tough sell for even the people making it just because everything is just dialed up so much. Yeah. And you're really really just going for it with you, every single scene. You're showing stuff just to show stuff, like I feel like some of these shots are. Like they're mm-hmm. just like them doing the thing in the rain rape. They don't cut away. Like they don't cut away from yeah. what's going on. I mean, That's not, why. Yeah, and they're not really holding back, which honestly <laughs> to an extent I do respect that. Um, and I, I think that, I, I mean, granted, it, A Clockwork Orange isn't a film that would be made today probably. Um, it may be made. I mean, I think it'd be it'd be more made. It'd be made today, but it'd be like seen as a B film instead of an A film. Well, I don't think that rape scene is. It was made. Would be made today. Maybe not. I mean, it, I feel like that would rub a lot of people the wrong way. But also, we are more accustomed to like more violent stuff at this point. Sure, and I mean, I think there's also something to be said for people becoming desensitized, for for better or worse. I mean, like, yeah, it's just. It's not. It's not that I'm saying this movie's bad. I just don't like it. But I think it's an important film for what it kind of set forward because there's a lot of the rating system kind of comes out around this time in the early '70s, late '60s, and this film, I believe, originally was going to be rated X, mm-hmm. and he had to cut a couple scenes out to make it R. Yeah. I think there's a cut out there. The X-rated cut, I think, is out there somewhere. Yeah. Well, Kubrick. Yeah. Kubrick released a different cut in the UK, mm-hmm. like he always did. But sure. yeah. I also think of this film kind of in a same vein, if you will, of a Tarantino film, and just yeah. how just how really he's kind of doing his own thing, and just how everything. Obviously, Tarantino's kind of known for his. Um, uh, explicit, just everything, whether it's violence or language or sex or all that. Yeah. Kind of just breaking the rules of film, uh, the standard rules of filmmaking, if you right. will. Right. I, I think that's, that's correct. I just, I think this is kind of like, the language in this is interesting because it's weird slang terms that yeah. you never heard before. Sure. But they're set in a way that you have to, like, you kind of have to look it up. Because yeah. there's, like, in the book, there's, like, an actual, like, table of contents with all the slang terms. And Cooper just is like, this is the way they talk. Enjoy. Sure. Yeah, and honestly, that that also might be a selling point where if you're not in with that, then you might just not enjoy this film at all. Yeah, I'm I'm just, I'm not down for this film. Sure. Like, it's never a film I've ever, re- I don't think I'm ever going to rewatch. Yeah. I think I've seen it once, I'm like, we're good. It would, I think it would be a tough rewatch. Um, I've only seen it once myself, but, um... It was nominated for four Oscars, um, Best Picture, Best Director for Kubrick, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Film Editing, um, Best Picture that year, we've talked about in the past, but French Connection won, um, A Clockwork Orange, um, Fiddler on the Roof, Nicholas and Alexandra, and The Last Picture Show. And I was talking about this right before we started recording, it is not in the National Film Registry. I'm not surprised by that, though, because yeah. the National Film Registry is supposed to be films that exemplify America. This film's set in Great Britain. Yeah, this film is about British characters. It doesn't really exemplify America. Sure. So I think that's why it's not here. Yeah, I, I also think that it's probably just a hard sell. Um, I think yeah. in general. <laughs> like if that's what survives, like a nuclear holocaust, and the, these are the films that survive because that's they take them down to a vault. Yeah, I I still think it's probably one of my favorite Kubrick films just because it's so ballsy. But like, I get why people don't like it. Yeah. Uh, moving on here um, to a slightly more lighthearted film, uh, number 69, uh, Tootsie from 1982, directed by Sidney Pollack, written by Larry Gilbert and Murray Schiskel, um, stars Dustin Hoffman, Jessica Lange, Terry Garr, uh, nominated for 10 Oscars. Um, it won for Best Supporting Actress for Jessica Lange. It's also nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for Hoffman, Best Supporting Actress for Terry Garr. Um, director, original screenplay, cinematography, sound, film editing, original and original song. Um, this is—I did not think I was going to enjoy this film as much as I thought, as, as much as I did. Yeah, I think the best part of this film for me is Bill Murray doing whatever the hell he wants to do. I didn't know he was in this film when I started watching. Yeah, it. when he, like I watched him, like, oh, that's Bill Murray. Cool. Kind of another breakout role for him. I know he had Caddyshack in '80, but this he had is Stripes right before this. Yeah, too. and Stripes, but it's kind of like he's. 
a commercial success at this point, and mm-hmm. it's really nice to see him in this movie because he's really good comic relief. Sure, because he's another actor. He well, is he? A, I don't remember if he's an actor or not. Um, I don't. I well, he. I know he was writing a play. Okay, so he's a writer. Point, yeah. But he's he's just as like uppity as and like just kind of. They're all pretentious in a sure. way, and I'm not the biggest fan of this movie. Sure. Um, Dustin Hoffman does an amazing job. He's an amazing actor for a reason. Dustin Hoffman's reason this movie got made because Dustin Hoffman really pushed Sidney Pollock to direct, and Sidney Pollock didn't want to do it, but Hoffman really wanted him to. Uh, the, the writers fought each. These two writers fought each other. But Hoffman like would go off and write some of the script himself, and he was the one who basically was involved in every single layer of this movie. I mean, he really just seems to be in control um, mm-hmm. the entire time. And kind of, you mentioned Bill Murray's char- Bill Murray's character. He kind of is also a really good support um, for Dustin Hoffman throughout this entire film. Yeah, he's kind of someone who c- he can bounce ideas off of, mm-hmm. and it really kind of sets this relationship that's really it's really light and really fun. Mm-hmm. But this film is also, I mean, for 1982, this film is very progressive. In what way? In what way, in my in the way that I think it is, um, in the fact that it, it really kind of brings to the forefront the treatment of women on film sets, um, I, and something that in an issue that is obviously very relevant today, um, I thought going into it, um, it'd be a little weird to see Dustin Hoffman cross-dressing, um, mm-hmm. but I mean also, I mean granted you could come at it from the other way of that this white man coming into I guess talk about feminism or whatever yeah it, but that, that's the reason I, I think that's the problem I have with it sure. because it, only t- it takes a white man to break this down yeah not, it, t- I, it takes a man to break this down not even a white man just a man to go behind the scenes and do this not that he was you know he just was an actor on his luck I think that's a valid criticism um, I also think that um, just bringing that issue up at all is a is a helpful thing yeah, I think it's really important to bring this up, especially in the 80s. Like, yeah. There's a film, Working Girl, with mm-hmm. Sigourney Weaver and yep. Harrison Ford, which I think is really important with breaking this down, too. Sure. I mean, there's also films like 9 to 5, other those kind of films that came out around this time to prove that like sexism, sexism is real. Sure, and I think that those films uh, might handle, may handle it better, especially with female leads. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that just this being for 1982, I think it also... Is an is an interesting conversation starter at least. It is. It's a good way to to kind of get the ball rolling on what the issue was at the time. Sure. Um, what do you think of Dustin Hoffman's performance? He's good. He's. I mean, Dustin Hoffman's always good. Um, I don't know if he deserved the nomination as much. I think. Yeah. I think that he was good, but I just. I, I just I'm not the biggest fan of this movie. Sure. I think it's good, but I don't think it's like top one hundred good. Do you think this is one of his definitive roles? No. 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 I would, what would you say? The Graduate. Uh, sorry, all the presidents, men. Um, I would put. I don't know if I'll put Tootsie. I'm thinking of other movies he's been in. I'm like lost. I had like a little brain cramp there for a second. I know uh, Marathon Man was a big one. Rain Man. Rain Man. Rain Man's up there. Um, I mean, IMDb, it's one of his four. And yeah. Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> Midnight Cowboy's on there. Kramer vs. Kramer. Yeah. I, mean, I just... I don't know how I feel about this movie. It's just me. It's just how I feel. Like, there's a lot of movies on this, and I'm like, why? Yeah. And this little 10. But I don't know if Tootsie's... Uh, top 100 greatest. Yeah, I uh, I think it it's a really enjoyable watch. Yeah, but it, but it's very of the time. It's very of the sure. 80s, I think. Sure. I also think that um, Jessica Lange is fantastic. Jessica Lange's one of the most underrated actresses, I think. She's got two Oscars, but yeah, nobody... Yeah, I think she definitely is, and she definitely uh, really anchors this film along with Dustin Hoffman as well. Yeah, he's, he's just like... She's the anchor mm-hmm. of this entire thing, like... Like, she's humble. She's a single mother. Yeah, she's the anchor of this movie, in my opinion. And also, I don't think it works quite as well if their chemistry isn't as good as it is. I think her and Dustin Hoffman play off each other really well. They do. Well. I think they're really well... The, the casting in this movie is really well done. 
and Sydney Sydney Pollock um, popping in as well. Yeah, he just randomly appears. Like, oh, hi. <laughs> I was like Sydney Pollock with hair. What is this? <laughs> um, it was also um, inducted into the National Film Registry in 1998. Um, again, I, I feel like this is one of those roles that um, people uh, associate Dustin Hoffman with. I don't think it's one of his best roles. No. Personally. Um, again, kind of the films you mentioned, I would say he's better at. But I also think this is one of the roles that he definitely put most of him, most of his effort and kind of his self into. Yeah. Which I think really worked for me. Um, I don't know if I'd put it this high. Yeah, I think if you're going to leave it on less, it needs to be in the 90s. Yeah, because I, I think that, again, kind of what I was mentioning, is a conversation starter for some important issues. Maybe not handled the best, but at least kind of opens the door. And I just also think it's an enjoyable movie um, and some great performances. And, yeah, I, I think it's a good time. I don't know. It's a fun time. Yeah. Stay for Bill Murray. Sure. <laughs> Cover Dustin Hoffman and drag and stay for Bill Murray. That's kind of the... <laughs> um, all right. Moving on here. Um, number 68, Unforgiven from 1992, directed by Clint Eastwood, um, written by David Webb Peoples. I don't yeah, know if I'm pronouncing peoples. that right. Um, stars Gene Hackman. I put Gene Hackman twice. Clint Eastwood. Uh, Gene, I, I, Gene Hackman, Clint Eastwood. I don't know what I was on when I was writing this. Um, Clint Eastwood, Morgan Freeman. Um, was nominated for nine Oscars. Um, won four um, for Best Picture, Supporting Actor for Hackman, Best Director, and Best Film Editing. It's also nominated for Best Actor for Clint Eastwood, um, Original Screenplay, Cinematography, Art Direction, and Sound. I just rewatched this film the other day. Uh, I really enjoy it. It's one of my... One of my uh, the better westerns that I've seen. I think it's the best of Clint Eastwood's westerns, including his Sergio Leone. I well of the ones that are American the, made. Okay. The American made ones. Okay, I mean, got I mean you. he's the man with no name forever. I don't think. Yeah. I. It's Unforgiven, such an interesting film because it breaks down westerns at a time when the western was dead. The de- western really wasn't around as much. Um, and it kind of brought a new light to the neo-Western, which is more realistic. It's not hiding the fact that these men kill people, but it's also not, it's not going to glorify them sure. in a way. There was also a gap kind of after this movie of like, of a big time Western. What, I don't even think the most modern Westerns, I think a neo-Western would be like No Country for Old Men. Yeah. I mean, I, I know they did the. I know the Cullen brothers did the remake of True Grit. Um, I which, like that movie. Which I like that movie. Um, I, I I like Three Ten to Yuma. Three Ten to Yuma is probably one of the best remakes of all time. Yeah. Um, I will say maybe just original westerns. There haven't been a ton. Yeah. There's Quick and the Dead, which that's a fun popcorn shoot 'em up movie. There hasn't been that many great yeah. ones. I mean, uh, the Jesse James. Assassination of Jesse James by, by the coward Robert Ford. The longest t- unnecessary title. I just called it the Assassination of Jesse James. Yeah. It's, that's a really good, that's a well-made Western. Unforgiven is just so unique, in, especially narrative-wise. Because you come to Clint Eastwood's character who's supposed to be kind of, he's, he's lost his touch. They have a nice little uh, uh, prologue mm-hmm. there, kind of explaining who he was. He lost his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also the baddest killer in the West. Um, yeah, he was. Yeah, he was William Money. Um, but yeah, he's also kind of he's also retired. Um, but again, he's kind of called back into it. Um, yeah. And it's a bit of a just kind of a retired retired gun for hire coming back. Too old back for this. For one last yeah one yeah. last job. Um, and it's really interesting. I think Gene Hackman um, plays a really um, compelling. Uh, I, I don't know. I He's have a protagonist. A hard time, I have a hard time calling him the villain. He's a protagonist. I think. I think. I think there's multiple protagonists. I think him and Clint Eastwood are the protagonists of this movie. I also think that everyone, at least all of the main players in this movie, even the Schofield kid, um, along with them. Uh, I, I think everyone is morally ambiguous. They're all well-rounded. Like, the, you, yeah. you get to know everybody pretty well. I mean, also, a lot of these characters get vulnerable, too. Like, the Schofield kid, at the beginning, he makes it sound like he is this, um, this like, big-time killer. Um, and and it, at it, the end of the day, he hasn't killed anybody. No, he's a... He's basically... The, I think Clancy calls him a virgin at the end. Mm-hmm. And... It's so 
uniquely done because I don't think there's a Western that was like this before this. I don't think there's been a Western like this since mm-hmm. where they tell, they point out the good and bad in people because uh, Clint Eastwood's character, Will and Money, who's drunk, he would kill people. He killed a kid and that's when he knew he had to end it. Yeah, I mean, when, that, that was just a big thing near the end there is when he was saying, I've killed women and children. And he he knows the sins that he's committed, and he's kind of coming to grips with that throughout this film. But then at the end of the day, um, near the end of the film, when they kill Morgan Freeman's character, that kind of, I guess, forces his hand Yeah. in a way. Um, I, I also, I think for me, there's just something really compelling about that kind of uh, gunman, uh, retired, kind of coming coming out of retirement for one last job. I think that's part of the reason why I love John Wick so much. Yeah. Um, just it, It's just really it's just really an interesting storyline. Um, I, I think that um, this film as a whole, uh, would you say that uh, it kind of brought Clint Eastwood back to the forefront? It did. I, I mean, he was directing at this point. He had, I think they finished the Dirty Harry movies by this time. Mm-hmm. And he had had this film under his... He'd, kn- he'd known about this film for a long time. And he finally decided to make it. And he wasn't, you know, kind of brought him back to knowing that he should be... Let's just say, knowing... It brought him back to the star, the limelight, and brought him back to the forefront of acting and directing, acting and directing which he was really good in this movie. I think Gene Hackman really steals a show in this movie, though. Sure. I think Gene Hackman's so... His character's so well-rounded that there's no one here that's a good person. Yeah. I think that's the the best thing about this. Except I think Morgan Freeman's the only one who's kind of... You can sympathize with a little bit. He's probably the closest... Um, to a to a good guy in this. Yeah, because the Schofield kid's just an arrogant, arrogant kid who thinks that he knows it all and is there to kill. and thinks it's the best thing in the world. Where everybody, where uh, Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman are like, no, it really sucks. It's hard to do. Yeah. Also, when you can't see. Yeah, you can't see past <laughs> twenty yards. Yeah. And you know Morgan Freeman's the sympathetic character because he gets killed, and it's like, and it's so sad because he was. He didn't want to kill the guy. Mm-hmm. He decided that they should leave. He feels so bad for him. Sure. Um, yeah, and they right before he died, they were going to go back and split up the shares, and they were going to be done with it. But then, again, that's kind of the, the driving force to kind of, for lack of a better term, put the nail in the coffin for mm-hmm. um, Clint Eastwood's character and really kind of unlock, I guess, that killer instinct, yeah. if you will, in William Money um, and kind of... I guess get the um, revenge on Lil Bill. Yeah, I, I think also you're talking about underrated actresses for Jessica Lange. I think Gene Hackman's career has been kind of slept on a little bit. Yeah, he's just he's one of the best actors still working. He's not working anymore. He retired. Uh huh. He hasn't uh, made a film since 2004, I believe. Really? Yeah. I thought he's been. I thought he's been something else since. Okay. Yeah. But Hackman just is one of the best actors probably ever. But he doesn't get as much recognition because he never really was the leading leading man. Uh, I mean, French Connection. French Connection, but that was, but I don't. He doesn't have defining leading roles. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, he's he's kind of a kind of a character. I know that like Royal Tenenbaums. Um, he was kind of the forefront. Mississippi Burning. I believe yeah. kind of him and Willem Dafoe are playing off each other. Um, yeah, no, he's he's had a really interesting career. Um, I mean, he's been good. Hoosiers, I think, is another big one yeah. for him. But he would. Uh, but I think that those roles are very. They're not very many of those roles for him. Sure. Yeah. Um. I. But again, he's just one of those guys that you put him in anything and he'll he'll deliver. Yeah. It was also uh, that year for Best Picture. Um, Unforgiven one, like we mentioned. Uh, There's also A Few Good Men, Howard's End, Scent of a Woman, um, The Crying Game. And other notable films from that year, uh, The Player, um, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Aladdin, Batman Returns, Last of the Mohicans, Chaplin. Um, this was infamously the Oscars where Al Pacino finally won um, an, an acting Oscar. I see you're shaking your head. He should have won well, for, like, a bunch of other movies. <laughs> for sure. Ooh, ah. Yeah, um, I think uh, Worthy, best picture winner of this of this bunch. Mm, a Few Good Men, was, so good. I figured that's what you would say. But I think... Of these films that kind of 
this changed the Western forever. So I, as much as I would like to say a few good men, I think Unforgiven's a good winner for this yeah, year. for sure. There's not like the player is good. Bram Stoker's Dracula is good. There's no like other films that are nominated, other films that you ta- we've talked about. This is the best of the bunch, I think. Sure. Um, yeah, just a really great film. Inducted into the National Film Registry in 2004. Um, one of uh, Clint Eastwood's best films, I think, just in general. Yeah, I see Million Dollar Babies his best directing movie though. Yeah, he also won the Oscar for that, I believe. Best I director, right. best. Yeah. I think that one best picture uh-huh. again. I think 2004, if I remember. Yeah, that movie's correctly. insane too. Yeah, that movie's awesome. Um, moving on here, um, number 67, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf from 1966. This was Mike Nichols' directorial debut, um, written by Ernest Lemon, stars. Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, George Siegel, nominated for 13 Oscars. It won five. Um, best Actress for Taylor, um, Supporting Actress for Sandy Dennis, um, Cinematography, Art Direction, Costume Design. It's also nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for Burton, Best Supporting Actor for Siegel, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Sound, Film Editing, and Score for a man, Alex North. Um, we talked about him about, on the Spartacus portion mm-hmm. a couple episodes back. Um, this film is awesome. It's a great movie. Yeah, I, I thought that at first it would get a little tiresome, um, just kind of, it, it really is set up like a play, um, and it's really just Elizabeth Taylor and, Robert, I almost said Robert Burton, Richard Burton, um, just being drunk for two hours, um, but no, I mean, it's really compelling, honestly, just as their their marital issues come to the forefront, mm-hmm. um, and it's just, obviously, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton are just two of the best um, yeah. to do, especially at this time. This is how you adapt a one-room play, because the play is in one room. It's literally just two people arguing the entire movie. Yeah, it's like, like it's like two people and their guests arguing the entire play. I think this kind of set up kind of Mike Nichols' career. It really made Elizabeth Taylor, who was kind of seen not as a great actress, but seen as a beautiful actress at this mm-hmm. point. She was a movie star. She was a movie star. She was since she was like thirteen. She'd mm-hmm. been in the system. And this kind of elevated her to where she's the leading lady, mm-hmm. not just a movie star, but an Academy Award winner. Sure. Richard Burton is amazing in this movie. I think he actually deserved the Oscar more than Elizabeth Taylor, in my opinion. Really? At just how subtly he's like, he is the meanest person in this movie. Mm-hmm. His anger is just, um, just, just kind of steadily grows yeah. throughout this film and their conversations. And at first... You can tell that there's something, even from the get-go in this film, you can really tell that something, there's something unsettling in this relationship. But yeah, again, as just the drinks start flowing and they have, um, they invite the guests over, um, it really is just compelling. I mean, as you mentioned, if I remember correctly, there are only like three scenes outside of their living room. There's one I mean, that the, bar. At the very beginning, they go to the bar and then they're out in the backyard. But at, at, outside of that, I think that's it. Yeah, it takes place in this house. The cinematography in this movie is amazing. Just because the way they have to set it up in one place for the majority of it. Mike Nichols directed the crap out of this movie. Did a really good job with this. Um, it just, it's just one of those movies you think about when you think of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Because Bridget, I mean, this film doesn't work if the dialogue isn't just top notch. Yeah, and also the chemistry between Taylor and Burton, who were I think they're married at this time. They were married at this time. They were married, yeah. and mm-hmm. so they were always bickering as well. So it kind of fit. I think they actually divorced a year or two later after this film. They divorced, get back yeah. together again. Uh-huh. Probably they yeah. were star-crushed lovers, basically. Yeah. But I just don't think it works if they don't have that chemistry. Mm-hmm. And also Siegel and uh, Sandy Dennis. Sorry, I was like, what's her name? Sandy yeah. Dennis. Their characters are so uniquely too, because I think Siegel also gives a really good performance because sure. he has intentions that are outside of what you think. Because you meet him, he's a nice preppy yeah. guy. You think, oh, he's gonna be nice. By the time of the end of the movie, you find out that he's a womanizer. Uh-huh. He he's only there to sleep with Elizabeth Taylor's character. Uh-huh. He's only there basically to become powerful and basically supersede Richard Burton's character. I think this movie's masterfully made. I'll put this mother graduate for Michael Mike Nichols if I'm being perfectly honest. Really? Okay. Just because I think, just narrative wise, and you feel it's a not a lot of action. It's a lot of dialogue, and you feel like you are in the midst of it the entire time. Yeah, um, I, I just also think that 
It's crazy to me that this is Mike Nichols' first film. Yeah, he was a play. He was a play director. Yeah. Playwriter, too. Which I think also might have been a natural first step um, for him as well to direct something like this. Yeah. Um, to kind of break into the forefront. And just you mentioned The Graduate there. It was only a year later. Yeah. 67. That, that's a that's just even right there. That's a two-film run. That's. I mean, yeah, he also... Mike Nichols just directs the crap out of this movie. Like, yeah. there's stories of him because he's a first-time director and basically his crew didn't respect him at all. Mm-hmm. So I guess some guy offhand said, oh, we're going to do a bunch of camera movements, but we're not. We're going to do a bunch of setups, but we're not going to film anything. So he, literally one night, they waste an entire night of them doing camera setups and not shooting anything. Jeez. He's like, it's like, look at me. I'm. This is my ship. Let me do what I'm supposed to do. And I think that that kind of set the tone for a film that was... This was thought to be in, unfilmable, and he did it, and he did it well enough that it's a classic. Mm-hmm. And I mean, plays like you mentioned, plays are really hard to adapt to films. Yeah, I think at least for me they are. Um, mm-hmm. I know one of the more recent ones was Fences um, by Denzel Washington. Yeah, Fences, but that always had a lot of production design. This was, takes place in a room, and that could yeah. be bare bones. Sure, I mean it's. It, I mean that this and Twelve Angry Men kind of have the same same yeah. setup in a way. Um, best picture that year. Um, it was a man for all seasons one. Um, Alfie, what? Yeah, Alfie, uh, the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Uh, the sand pebbles and who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf should have won this year. Yeah, that Is was, it... yeah, that was an interesting, interesting class. Yeah. The old Academy strikes again. <laughs> yes. I mean, th- th- that's definitely one of the, one of those, uh, Years they probably would go back and uh, revise that a bit. And who else was like other notable films from 1966? Uh, honestly, I was scrolling through on IMDb and there weren't a whole lot. Um, that was kind of a weaker year um, as far as uh, notable films and kind of top notch films. Um, it was in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was inducted into the National Film Registry in 2013. Um, that seems really late for that. It movie. does seem kind of late. Um, yeah. But, again, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Um, incredible directorial debut. Um, you're talking about uh, Mike Nichols not being respected. I think one of the best way to earn your stripes um, as a director would be uh, knocking off Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate back-to-back years. I mean, two of the arguably two of the best films ever made. Um, yeah. And two classics. Two classics for sure. I mean, both on this list. Obviously, we'll talk about the Graduate much later. Um, yep, it's in the top twenty, if I remember right. Also, this film was shot in black and white in the time when color was the standard. Yeah, and I think that also, I think that also helped it. Well, I mean, Elizabeth Taylor had ridiculous makeup on because she was like thirty. She was in her early thirties. Yeah. To make her look a lot older than she was, so she looked like if you see color photos from that, she looks like she just looks really bad. Yeah, and also I think that. It, it also just has that classic feel being black and white. Um, uh, moving on um, to uh, 66, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark um, from 1981, um, directed by Steven Spielberg, uh, written by Lawrence Kasdan, but George Lucas and Philip Kaufman helped with the story as well. Um, stars, obviously, Harrison Ford, Karen Allen, Paul Freeman. It was nominated for eight Oscars, um, and it won four um, art direction, sound, film editing, and visual effects. Um, also was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Cinematography, and Original Score for The Goat, John Williams. Um, best Picture that year. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Chariots of Fire won. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Atlantic City on Golden Pond, Reds, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark is the only like, good movie on that list. <laughs> um, on Golden Pond was uh, another... Another makeup award, that was Henry Fonda's Oscar that year. Um, other notable films that year, I put um, An American Werewolf in London, um, The Evil Dead, Das Boot, Escape from New York, and Stripes. Um, it was inducted into the National Film Registry in 1999, which I actually is pretty quick. It's pretty quick for the National Film Registry. Yeah, it's only 18 years. Yeah. Um, I mean, this film, this film is uh, generation-defining. That's Spielberg's... It's one of Spielberg's best films. That, like, it's just Spielberg's best. Like, it's one of the most quintessential action films. Really, just made Harrison Ford a star. Like, he'd been in Star Wars, but this made him a superstar. Sure. Tom Selleck was um, famously up for the role before he took Magnum PI. 
he wouldn't have done I think as good a job as Harrison Ford. I think Harrison Ford just brings such a nice charisma. He, charisma and he's a little open. Like he's a lot more open to like emotional beats. I don't think Tom Selleck would have been able to because he's such a he's kind of like a badass at the time. But this is just a classic film. And I think Harrison Ford. Um, I think it's really interesting. He's had a obviously a career defined by big time. I don't know. Popcorn flicks is the right word, but franchises or blockbusters. Blockbusters. Um, but also, he's just a really good actor. Yeah, you see just it here. Like you general. really see it here. Yeah. Because like here, like the first time you see Indiana Jones. He doesn't say anything, but you can tell that this guy's a badass. You can yeah. tell, like, what he is and all the all this. And then they cut to him being professor, and he's awkward and goofy. And, like, the fact that you can switch between the two of those roles and then how he carries his film, you can tell that he's just in his, in his bag. He's amazing in this movie. Yeah, and this is um, just a, a few years after Star Wars. So he's actually doing Star Wars and Indiana Jones at the same... There's a bit of crossover there as yeah, well. Yeah, Empire came out the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, just this film... Uh, I can't say... can't say it put Spielberg on the map because he was already kind of in the forefront at this time. No, but this, it kind of built upon Spielberg as one of the best directors working. Sure. I mean, E.T. came out the, the next year. Um, and this also was one of the, uh, not the first, um, first times, but it was really one of the, uh, landmark, um, collaborations between, uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. It's their most, it's the most influential, uh, contribution because they, they really worked together on this and you can tell that like, that it has influences of Star Wars and of like Jaws and all those films. And it was based off of these guys doing serial, like all the old serials in the 30s and 40s that they grew up watching. Sure. And they're like, we want to do this. We want to do this movie. And it's quick and dirty. Like it has a lot of tricks that Spielberg does normally, but also just seems really gritty. It doesn't seem like it's flashy. It just seems like we're in this action. We're going to be in this action. That's a real stunt that just happened. Like, I mean, I think Harrison Ford tore his ACL on set. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, towards ACL on set, had bumps and bruises, did a lot of his own stunts. I mean, it's it's a classic for a reason. And there's also just so many uh, famous scenes and shots. Um, obviously, the opening, it's one of the best openings to a film ever made. Yeah. I would say. Um, just him stealing the idol and, that, and obviously the boulder tumbling down. Um, everybody loves to point to the um, shot where the guy, uh, they're in that marketplace, and the guy is swinging the sword all around. He just pulls out the gun and shoots him. Yeah, this production was really bad because they all, uh, everybody got sick. Mm-hmm. Seth Spielberg who brought canned food because uh, <laughs> Lucas told him to bring canned food. And basically, you know, this film, I mean, the opening, I should get back to the opening. The opening kind of sets you up with the character of Indiana Jones, who I think is one of the best characters ever, like ever. You could say he may be the best hero ever mm-hmm. because he's cocky. He knows a lot of stuff. He's he's smart. You know that he's smart. He's afraid of snakes. He's afraid of snakes. <laughs> you know that um, he's also, he's not the best at this because Belloc is showing him up and that he kind of was a womanizer early in his earlier because of Karen Allen's character and he's well-traveled because he's been to Cairo before uh-huh. so it's really one well, it's just one of the best films in my opinion ever made it's one of my favorites I uh I prefer as a film I prefer The Last Crusade because I really yeah. like, I really like the dynamic between him and Connery yeah um, and I, I think that works really well. Um, it's one of the rare third films in a franchise that like works. Yeah. Because um, that that always that doesn't always happen. Um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, a lot of people confuse it. It's not Indiana Jones in the Raiders of the Lost. They renamed Ark. it for a box set. Yeah, but I it's mean, just if it's associated with George Lucas, I don't know if I trust um, re-releases. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> random CGI in the. And Mos Eisley. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> uh, I, I I always hate it when I I always know if I'm watching the right version of um, uh, A New Hope, um, or I guess just Star Wars. Um, if there's the random uh, CGI CGI monsters walking in when Luke and Obi Wan are um, yeah 
right. Some of them look the like the when they're in the sand dunes and they're riding those lizards, I'm like, that looks okay. And then you go to Masasa, you're like, oh, no. I'm like, what is, like, there's a, there's literally a Gungan walking in the background in one scene. I'm just like, what's going on? Anyway, that's beside the point. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, Indiana Jones, again, just, I mean, as far as the impact on pop culture, I mean, it's crazy to me that Harrison Ford has embodied the roles of Han Solo, um, uh, uh, Indiana Jones, and even um, Deckard from Blade Runner. Deckard from Blade well Runner. Big one. Yeah. I mean, uh, Jack Ryan. Jack well. Ryan, yeah. Um, uh, he was the president at one point, Air Force One. <laughs> have to, have to Get off that. my plane. <laughs> oh, I love Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford's one of my favorite actors of all time. He is awesome. Um, he's a crotchety old man that can't fly a helicopter, but he... I love him. I love him so much. Who doesn't love Harrison Ford? Um, number 65, um, The African Queen from 1951, uh, directed by John Huston, written by James Agee and John Huston. Um, stars Humphrey Bogart, Catherine Hepburn, Ro- Robert Morley. Uh, nominated for four Oscars. Um, it won for Best Actor for Humphrey Bogart. It's also nominated for Best Actress for Catherine Hepburn, Best Director, and Adapted Screenplay. It was inducted into the National Film Registry in 1994. Graham, what are what is your what are your overall um, thoughts on this one? It's really high for this movie. Yeah, I I love Bogart and I love Hepburn. They have really good chemistry. The dynamic like. between them is electric. Yeah, and, and they he, work really well together. And Houston did a really good job of making it feel um realistic mm-hmm. and providing a good story. But Bogart won the Oscar for this. This is his only Academy Award. And he went, but he went for this movie, not for other movies that we're gonna get down the list on. I think Bogart's good, but you can tell that he's sick. You can tell that he was starting. This is around the time that he uh, received his diagnosis for cancer. Yeah. You can tell that he's sick. Um, I I don't know how I feel about this movie. I enjoy it. Um, I could see how it be. It might be a little slow for some people. It, it's slow for, for modern uh, films, I think. Yeah, but I just think that um, the dynamic um, between Catherine Hepburn and Humphrey Bogart works really well. It does. Um, these are two actors that, I mean, they had been in better stuff before this. I mean, they're but stars. But they're still operating at the top of their game. I mean, game. they're still stars at this point. Sure. Like Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn were both at the top of the food chain in Hollywood at this time. It's also weird for me to see um, Humphrey Bogart in a film with color. Yeah, that was super that was weird because I've always seen him in black and white films, either in a suit and him wearing a t-shirt and shorts and a beard and too. a beard with a cap. It just throws me off. Yeah, it's definitely one of those roles that um, it it kind of fits into that um, kind of Oscar stereotype. You have to like, I guess, dirty yourself up I mean, or change your whole persona I mean, to I mean, win an Bogart Oscar. had was sick. They all were sick. They were in the African... They literally were on location shooting this movie. And, like, I guess, like, Houston and Bogart would drink t- themselves to death basically well, every they night. They had all that gin on the boat. <laughs> yeah, they drank They drank all night and then would come up hungover the next day and shoot. Jeez. Yeah, that's... Well, that's probably, that's not the best habit, but... Um, yeah. No, I mean, I, I like this film. I think that... I, I understand why it's on the list. Um, I think I could... Move it down a little. I move it down to like the nineties if I'm. Yeah. Because I think this is it's a good movie, mm-hmm. but it's not like it's not it shouldn't be above Raiders of the Lost Ark and other a bunch of other films on this list. Yeah, it's also one of those films that kind of we talked about it before. It's one of those films that all the people involved have made better things. Yeah. Um, Houston Treasure Sierra Madre. Oh yeah. We'll get to that later. Um, Maltese Falcon. Um, yeah, no. Casablanca. <laughs> Casablanca, yeah. Well, uh, he John Houston didn't make Casablanca. No, I'm talking about Frederick. Oh, Bogart. Sorry. Bogart, yeah. Gotcha, Bogart gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. for Casablanca. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, d- good film. Probably move it down. Um, film that I would not move down. Number 64, Network, um, from 1976. Directed by Sidney Lumet, who we've talked about um, earlier on this podcast. Um, written by Patty Chayefsky. Stars Faye Dunaway, William Holden, Peter Finch, Robert Duvall. Uh, nominated for 10 Oscars. It won four um, for Best Actor for Peter Finch, Best Actress for Faye Dunaway, Supporting Actress for Beatrice Strait, um, Original Screenplay. Um, it was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for William Holden, um, Supporting Actor for Ned Beatty, Director 
cinematography, film editing. It's also the first film to win um, three acting awards since The Streetcar Named Desire from 1951. Um, it was inducted to the National Film Registry in 2000. Probably uh, one of the best satires ever made. Probably. I think yeah. it really set the tone for what we have now, which mm-hmm. It's really scary how prominent this movie is now. Oh, this film is extremely relevant yeah, to 2019. Yeah, it's so scary. Oh, my gosh. I mean, literally, it's... These guys are just power-hungry for ratings. Yeah. At this point, they will literally do anything. Um, I mean, just incredible performances um, across the board. Um, Peter Finch, I'd call it a descent into madness, but it's really from the forefront. <laughs> he's he's, he's, mad, he's He's crazy from the beginning, but he just... It just spirals. <laughs> yeah, and then William Holden, um, his uh, his uh, he's relationship. So, he's sleazy. He, oh, he's super sleazy. And then yeah. he goes to Faye Dunaway, but then Faye Dunaway is really just using him the whole time. And then Robert Duvall is kind of this um, at the top of, top of the network, and he's just kind of, I guess, really doing whatever he can for ratings. It doesn't really matter what, and kind of exploiting Peter Finch. If you will, when people are literally telling him, he, this dude needs to go to therapy, why are you putting him on his own TV show just screaming into the void? But I can't take it anymore. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, just incredible performances across the board. Patty Chiefsky, um, it's one of the, probably one of the better scripts of the 70s, if yeah. not if not of the of the century. Yeah. Um, really, really influential. Another incredible film um, to add to Sidney Lumet's catalog. Yeah, that's 100% accurate. Yeah. This, uh, Sidney Lumet, I know we've talked about him kind of at length on previous pods, um, but again, he's just, he's kind of in full control here. He, keep pop, he keeps popping up because he makes good films. Yeah. Like, we, we talked last time, I was like, I forgot he directed this movie, and mm-hmm. then we brought up, I'm like, oh yeah, of mm-hmm. course he did. This sure. is him, this is his kind of movie. Yeah. Um, like, he's just one of the best directors, he's underrated director of all absolutely. time. Absolutely. Um, in the 70s, he, I mean, he was really owning it. Um, he made A Dog Day Afternoon a couple years earlier. Which, I love how every one of his films feels totally different. Mm-hmm. And he, he definitely um, is really, he's really incredibly gifted at developing characters. Yeah. And even in, even in limited um, screen time. Yeah, I, I'm, this film's just, it's so good. Definitely be higher. Absolutely. Um, it didn't win Best Picture. Mm-mm. But it feels weird that year. Who was 76? 76. That was Rocky. That was, that was Rocky. That was Rocky. That was, Rocky. Mm-hmm. that was a good year. That was a really good year. Um, Taxi Driver was also that year. Damn, that's a good... The 75 and 76, I think, are... It's kind of the down-on-his-luck protagonist type thing. Where, like, sure. it's you versus the world. And also, all the presidents making him out this year. That's true. Yeah, it's really kind of uh, character-driven stories as well, for sure. Yeah. Um, and 75 and 76 are... Two of the best best picture classes ever. Yeah, as well. I, I mean, agree with had, that totally. Yeah, yeah, Jaws. Um, obviously. Uh, yeah, yeah, Jaws Network. Um, I'm gonna feel. I'm gonna vamp for a little bit while he looks sure. it up. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I thought I could remember it, but I need to pull it up again. Seventy fives and seventy six. I mean, Rocky Donna's luck uh, hero, who comes back and he's the underdog for the entire time, and you really feel that, and I really think that's why it won best picture. Mm-hmm. Especially because a lot of industries were dying around that time, and he kind of let okay. everything. Okay, I pulled it up. So for um, 75, seventy-five was Godfather Part Two, Chinatown, The Conversation, Lenny, The Towering Inferno. Seventy-six was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, Nashville. Seventy-seven, um, Rocky, All the President's Men, Bound for Glory, Network, Taxi Driver. So that three-year run. Yeah, I mean, you could... That's incredible. One Flew the Cuckoo's Nest. Barry, Barry Lyndon's amazing, too. That's that's one of Kubrick's... I'm, as much as I ripped Kubrick earlier, that's that movie's lit in all by candles and natural light. Yeah. That movie's insane. Well, even though you don't like Clockwork Orange, you still, I think, recognize you respect the filmmaking. Stanley like, Kubrick is one of the best to ever do it. Yeah, like Jaws, Nashville. We'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> I have thoughts on that as well. <laughs> 77, Rocky, All the President's Men, Bound for Glory, Network, Taxi Driver. Like, Taxi Driver puts Scorsese in the discussion for best directors working at that time. Mm-hmm. Still, I mean, he still is. He's one of the Defining greatest. Defining performance for Robert De Niro. He really put De Niro as a leading man. 
Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, he yeah he had he had had um, some. We should probably stop talking about Taxi Driver because it comes up a little bit later. <laughs> as much as we yeah, love this, as much no. as we love Taxi Driver. It's... I also just think this this reemphasizes my point that the '70s best decade for film, in my opinion. '70s and '90s are like the two best decades of film, in my opinion. Yeah, I I think that '90s had a lot of really good films. I think '70s slightly tops it for being more influential. Yeah, I I, I mean. The 70s for me is they allowed these the film school kids to do what they wanted. Oh, yeah. Which is something that had never been done before. Um, Easy Rider kind of broke that mold for sure. everybody. Absolutely. And so, like, Francis Coppola, George Lucas, Spielberg, Scorsese, Scorsese, and um, De, Brian Palma, De Palma. De Palma. Yeah. And Lumet. Lumet was already working at this time, but he was, he was kind of just, he still kind of was a runt and a little bit. People, yeah. he was looked down upon. But he, you know, these guys, it was really. The auteurs of the time made films that were influential to this day, like Jaws, Taxi Driver, Network, Godfather, mm-hmm. both those. Um, but 70s and 80s, 70s and 90s, to me, are just two of the best decades of mm-hmm. film because the quality of work coming out. There are also two era or two decades, rather, that um, it's really just um, filmmakers really going for it. Yeah, I would say the same thing. Well, I would say it was studios finally allowing them to do that. 90s for me is the independent filmmaker doing his own thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's why, which is what we have today. That's also Sundance. was That was a big boom in the early 90s as I mean, well. Pulp Fiction was a Sundance film. Sure. Reservoir Dogs as well. I yeah. mean, Quentin Tarantino really is one Tarantino, of Tarantino, Fincher. Mm-hmm. All those guys kind of came out of the festivals. I think so. 90s is like the festival decade yeah, 70s the is the, film, is the yeah. studio decade where the studios are like these kids want to make these films no other director really wants to make these films we'll let them do it yeah and and it paid off a it, lot of I time mean, you have so many good films oh yeah um and also just because brian de palma doesn't get shouted out a lot uh carrie um a film by him was one of the one of the a lot of people regard it as one of the best horror films yeah i would say it's important i mean it's i think it's one of the best king adaptations mm-hmm. it's most uh, loyal to the to the story. Um, also, Untouchables by De Palma. Yeah. It's one of my favorite That world. was 80s, but it was still... It's it was, still important. It's still important, absolutely. Ever, uh, sorry, if you're just talking De Palma in general, if he, he should get a film on this list. Yeah. He he is definitely the um, most disrespected of the Brat Pack. Yes. He's, he meets Scarface. That's like, okay, movie. It's a super long, but he's... Hip-hop thanks him for that. Yeah, I mean, he's <laughs> he is important because he kind of was able to push the boundaries of action and violence and was willing to go places that other directors weren't, mm-hmm. but also turn out a great product. Absolutely. So De Palma, much love to Brian De Palma. Hopefully he gets, and when we reconstruct this list later, we'll try to see if we can put him on here. Sure. Uh, moving on here to 63, uh, Cabaret from 1972. Um Excuse me. Um, directed by Bob Fosse, written by Jay Allen, stars Liza Minnelli, Michael York, Helmut Graham. Uh, nominated for ten Oscars, uh, won eight. Wow, I didn't know won eight. Yeah, for best actors for Liza Minnelli, uh, supporting actor for Joel Grey, uh, best director, cinematography, art direction, sound, film editing, score. Is nominated for best picture and best adapted screenplay. Um, best picture that year, um, Godfather won. Um, Cabaret, Deliverance, Sounder, and The Emigrants. That's also a pretty good class. Pretty good. I would the, say. Uh, the top three are really good. Oh, yeah. I uh, Deliverance, um, especially given um, Burt Reynolds passing a few months back, um, people need to go back to that film, I think. Yeah, that was last summer. Uh-huh. Um, but, no, Cabaret, um, first of all, do you like this film? I liked it. Yeah. I didn't think it was bad. Um, Bob Fosse was a Broadway director at this time. Mm-hmm. Best, one of the best choreographers of all time. There's a TV show out now um, based on him. Or, um, Fosse and Verdon. Fosse and Verdon, yes. And, I mean, he's important for a reason. This film is really well made. Liz Minnelli, if you don't know, is the daughter of Judy Garland. Mm-hmm. Controls this movie. Absolutely. Really drives it. It's a good movie. Yeah. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not the biggest, biggest fan of this movie, but I think it deserves to be on this list for just choreography's sake because – the choreography in this movie spectacular. Absolutely. The cinematography in this movie is spectacular. The direction, the acting, like it there's not a bad part of this movie. I think like every it's covered in all three areas. The editing, the cinematography, the 
production angles and how they just made this film pop. It's so well made. Yeah, and it's just really defining um, roles for Liza Minnelli, obviously. Um, Bob Fosse, uh, he made a pseudo biopic auto uh, yeah, yeah. Um, for um, uh, all that jazz um, at the end of the 70s um, but yeah he, he's a guy that was really really kind of just doing his own thing and um, it was it really worked I think um, cabaret uh, I I mean with all that said the fact that it won eight Oscars is is cool um, supporting actor Joel gray um, I I thought he was fine. I don't think he was that great. I, I'm trying I don't to, know if I necessarily would say. Who was best supporting that? That was Pacino, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, that was Pacino. Um, but, well, the thing is, it was Pacino, um, James Caan, and Robert Duvall from The Godfather. Pacino boycott the Oscars that year because he thought he should have been nominated for the lead because he has more screen time than Marlon Brando in The Godfather. That's right. Holy so, crap. Yeah, so Al Pacino did not go to the Oscars that year because he thought he deserved That's to be nominated. That's probably why he lost. The, it might have been. I also think that it's tough when you have multiple people nominated from the same film. I think, yeah, I think they kind of split that, votes. That dilute, that, yeah, that would dilute the, the pool. Yeah, it's I probably think. why he won. Yeah. But I think Pacino deserved an Oscar. Well, I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, even I think you could even make a better case for Godfather Part Two. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think he's the best act. He's the best. I mean. De Niro was so good in that movie. But. I mean, there's really a conversation to be had who is the best actor of the 70s, Robert De Niro or Al Pacino? Al Pacino. Uh, he had more leading roles. Well, that's true. Roles. He, had, he had more to do in the Dog 70s. Dog Day Afternoon, yeah. got both Godfather yeah. films, yeah. Serpico. Yeah, okay. I'll give in the 70s. I will say, even if you expand it past that, I think it's an interesting conversation. Because, I mean, De Niro owned the 80s and 90s. Yeah, yeah. well... Yeah, and then, uh, as we mentioned earlier, Pacino finally got recognized from the Academy um, in the 90s. But anyway, Cabaret, back to Cabaret. Um, good film. I'd move it down. thousand percent, yeah I, th- yeah. I think you move it down, but I still think it belongs on this list for what it did for other music, uh, film musicals because mm-hmm. I don't think the choreography on, like, the amount of just, I mean, it's a jazz musical, basically. Yeah. And that it kind of set the tone for like movies like Chicago, which won Best Picture, which is one of the worst Best Picture winners of all time. <laughs> but like it kind of set this tone for what you were going to see in musicals from now on, where it's all choreographed, best dancers are on screen at all times. For sure. Um, moving on to 62 here um, American Graffiti um, in 1973, uh, directed by George Lucas. Um, Written by George Lucas, Gloria Katz, Willard Hyuk. Stars Richard Dreyfuss, Ron Howard, Paul Lamott. Nominated for five Oscars, didn't win any. Um, Best Picture, Supporting Actress for Candy Clark. Uh, Director, um, Original Screenplay, Film Editing. Best Picture that year was The Sting one. One of our favorites. Heck yeah, um, should have been on this list. Um, uh, Touch of Class, American Graffiti, The Exorcist. Which belongs on this list. Um, Cries and Whispers is inducted to the National Film Registry in 1995. Got George Lucas Star Wars. It was um, produced by Francis Ford Coppola. It's a pretty good film. It's a fun movie. It's yeah. not a top 100 great movie. That's 60. <laughs> why is it 62? The bit, I, I think it's influential because it got Lucas to do Star Wars, that the studio was willing to give him Star Wars. Mm-hmm. It also really made Lucas a household name. One thing that it really did was push the, 80, the, 80, uh, the 50s culture back. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's an impo- it's an important film. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't know why it's so high. It's I liked it, but I didn't like it to the point where I was like, this should be on the top 100 greatest films. I guess maybe because it's one of the it's like one of the at from those times uh, one of the definitive high school movies. Maybe, but I, and also maybe also it might also be just probably the fact that it did get him Star Wars. I mean, it's also just Americana. Americana, yeah. At the height, I it's mean, very. It has very dazed and confused vibes. I'd say dazed and confused is much better. Well, yeah, I guess. But They're also kind of different in their own ways. But anyway, but the, the other thing about this is, it's also George Lucas like somehow getting a deal done that like should never be done. He got the rights to all these songs because. They didn't think that this movie was going to be that big of a deal. Well, yeah, they were wrong on that account. Because this movie made a bunch of money. This movie made a crap ton of money, which is 
why Lucas got Star Wars. And got the Best Picture nod, too. Yeah, he got Best Picture nod. It really put him at the forefront of the genre of directing because they thought he was going to be the whisk kid, not Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Spielberg had, and Spielberg just was working, doing nothing really at that time. Yeah. And he didn't, yeah, he didn't really break in until the mid to late 70s. Till Jaws in 75. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, because he had the Sugarland Express right before that, but that was a pretty that was a smaller film. He did Duel at in seventy three, and then he did Sugarland Express, and then Jaws. Yeah, which I mean, Jaws. Yeah, it, we could do a whole thing on Spielberg, but um, we yeah, probably will. I mean, yeah, American Graffiti. Uh, it's fine. Um, it's 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 good. Even I think it's great. Really good performances. But sixty two so high. Yeah, that's true. I I also think that nostalgia plays a huge factor into yeah, this list. I bet it does. I'm just thinking why this film like I I always use do the right thing as a barometer for now cuz like it's such a classic and influential film. Mm-hmm. Is American Graffiti a, should it be above it or below it? And I think it definitely is below it. Oh, well, yeah, for using that as the barometer, absolutely. I, I think it, I think it's top I don't think it's top 100 if I'm being completely honest. Yeah, I mean, I I think that um, a lot of those films, like the '90s and '80s, even uh, definitely uh, could could be moved up um, on this list, just because. Also, a lot of the newer films, newer, I guess, from uh, from the 21st century. Yeah, there's only one film. I think there's only two or three films from the 21st century on this yeah, list. Yeah, I think Fellowship of the Ring is one of them in the top I think, 50. I think but Fellowship of the Ring is the only. Yeah, I think the only one. I think that's yeah, that's that was old. Is that 01 or 02? 01, yeah. yeah and, um, then, and then 99, like from, like, there was only a couple from the 90s, and 99 was a lot, was six cents. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely plenty of revision to be made. Um, moving on to number 61, um, the last one we'll talk about this episode, uh, Sullivan's Travels from 1941. Um, wh- what are you going to say? It's... Why? Why is this? Uh, why is this at number written, 61? Written and directed by Preston Sturgis, stars Joel McCree... Um, Veronica Lake, Robert Warwick, um, not nominated for any Oscars. Kind of a uh, satire, if you will, of um, kind of the Hollywood industry at this time. And I think that's the only reason it's on this list, because it's making fun of the directors of the time. It's also it's also kind of making fun of the fact of that people, these, these rich people in Hollywood need to go um, and are kind of making light of the struggles of actual, like, impoverished people. Yeah. Um, I really like this film. I, I just think, I don't think of it as an influential film though. I think it was ahead of its time, from the satirical perspective. Yeah, I mean, so was Tootsie. I mean, so was. I think Sullivan's Travels probably a, is a better made film. Okay, I I watched this, and I just was like, I left kind of going, eh. I'm okay. I'm probably higher on it than you are. Yeah. I would definitely keep it on the list. Really? I didn't think I it deserved to be on the list. I would keep it on the list for sure. Okay. Yeah, just because I think, I think for 1941, I mean, that I, I think it's it's more self-aware. It's pretty yeah. self-aware for a film from that era. Um, it's it's concise. It's only about an hour and a half, if I remember right. It's, uh, yeah, I just think that, I just think that it really works for what it is. It knows what it is. It knows what it's trying to accomplish. And I mean, I mean 61 might be high. For it, I just um, think of the films underneath it. Like I didn't know, I didn't had never heard of Sullivan's Travels. Sure. And I know a lot more of these names that are below it than I know above it. Yeah. Um. I. Yeah. I also. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a fair point. I mean, that that was a big year for film in general. I mean, there's Citizen Kane comes out that year. Mm-hmm. Maltese Falcon comes out that year. Yeah. Uh, Lady Eve comes out that year, which I think it's Henry Fonda's like. Superstardom jump. Uh-huh. Uh, Dumbo from Disney comes out that year. How Green Was My Valley, which won Best Picture that year. Uh-huh. Uh, the Wolfman, Gary Cooper as Sergeant York comes out that year. Suspicion and Meet John Doe come out that year. It's a big year for film, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned, uh, which also might be, which is also a big reason why multiple uh, films from that year are on this list. Um, but yeah, I think Sullivan's Travels just, I also think it's still funny. It's still pretty funny. Yeah. Like, I, I laughed at a couple of parts, I think the but. the humor works pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and again, I just think it's, it's ahead of its time, so I think it deserves to be on this list. But anyway, that's 70 through 61. Um, Graham, uh, what films from that 
those ten uh, would you take off? I know you kind of alluded to it earlier, but what would you what would you take off? I'd say Clockwork Orange, Tootsie, Sullivan's Travels, and American Graffiti are the ones I'd be like, yeah, these you can see these definitely going. Sure. And you could make a lot. I mean, you can make a case for me for Tootsie and Clockwork Orange, but American Graffiti, I don't know what it brought to the table. Sullivan's Travels, you kind of you brought up the point that it kind of poked fun at the film industry. Which is why bet it was it's on this list because uh-huh. it poked fun at the industry. Yeah, and also Hollywood and L.A. love films about Hollywood is another thing. Yeah, <laughs> but, exactly. Yeah, I probably would take off Tootsie, even though I still like the film. Um, I I I African think Queen. African Queen. I might yeah. pump off. Um, I keep Network, keep Cabaret, and I'd probably take off American Graffiti. I just. I just don't see the point of American Graffiti. <laughs> it's so high. Yeah. I, I I will say, I think all these films are good. There, there's not a bad, like, as much as, you know, I gripe about A Cup of Orange, it's so well made. It's a well-constructed so film. I just don't like the message. I don't like, sure. and, and I just don't like the story that much. It's still well made. It's still a, one of the greatest films ever made by Kubrick. Mm-hmm. It's not my favorite, but it's still important. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, just to run down the list that we discussed in this episode, A Clockwork Orange, Tootsie, Unforgiven, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Raiders of the Lost Ark, African Queen, Network, Cabaret, American Graffiti, and Sullivan's Travels. Um, interesting group. Definitely covers a, covers not as wide of a range as we have in past episodes. No, a lot of, a lot of the 70s. A lot of 70s. I think we're going to keep going up here, see a lot more 70s and 60s and probably 50s. I think there's a lot of films that we've talked about in the past that should be on this list, like Back to the Future uh-huh. and um, Fight Club. And it kind of gets to the point where this is where old, the old voters, like people who were in old Hollywood or were nostalgic about films, yeah. really wanted this wanted this list to be made about that. Sure. Whereas now it would be more of films that influence this generation yeah. that we now see as standards for quality. Yeah, and it, I mean, there's really that give and take of what films actually hold up 30, 40, 50, 60 years after the fact. Um, and I, I think that there's definitely a, a, a nice balance of that. I know that there are some people in maybe our generation that don't even like black and white films in general. There which, definitely are, there are, because I think that black and white makes it feel old, but... But they're also just incredible. There's incredible filmmaking from every era, I would yeah. say. But that will do it for this week's episode. Um, thank you all for tuning in. Um, Seventy or sixty-one through seventy, rather, of the AFI, AFI Top One Hundred. Um, another edition in this series that we're doing of the um, best films in American history um, for Grand Canyon. I'm Brady Shaw, and we'll see you next time. Peace.